from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Artani over at the Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 10th. Today, the only 2020 Democrat with an immigration plan. Yazidi refugees find a home in Canada and the first photo of a black hole. The problem is that this president has chosen the completely wrong way to treat human beings. Julian Castro is a former Obama cabinet member and a former mayor of San Antonio. Now he is one of many Democratic candidates for president. But he's the only candidate so far to release a detailed immigration plan. What I propose is that we go back to treating people who cross the border the way that we used to treat them, basically between the late 1920s and 2004, under Section 1325 of the Immigration and Nationality Act. It is a crime to cross the border. But we didn't really enforce it as a crime. We only enforced it as a civil violation, mostly. I believe that we should go back to that. This is actually a really interesting debate that I think is going on quietly right now in the Democratic Party. Michael Scheer covers national politics for The Post. Castro's approach to the presidential campaign is to try and get large base turnout and try and drum up support in southern states like Texas, Arizona, maybe Georgia with large minority populations, border states that have a different view of immigration. President Trump and several other Democrats are focused far more on upper Midwest states around the Great Lakes like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, where you have more working class white voters who tend to have a different view of the immigration issue. Think of it more in terms of security and less in terms of human rights or compassion, as he says. And so for Castro, I think he he thinks this is a winning issue for Democrats. He thinks you can take back the issue of immigration from President Trump because there's just a ceiling on the number of Americans who are so outraged and concerned about both immigration and the changing demographics of the country and that you can excite another part of the country to come out and vote against them. And that's his strategy. But if his plan involves decriminalizing coming illegally across the border, couldn't that backfire? I mean, couldn't President Trump paint that as practically open borders and that he could use that against Castro in an election? Absolutely. And, and you know, the, the question among Democrats right now is, does it matter your position? Because almost certainly President Trump is going to paint any Democrat who runs against him as open borders. I mean, that's his position right now. The Democratic Party's for open borders, even though that's not factually true. But it is clear that Republicans and president in particular will use this issue against Democrats to drive out their base. The question is, how do Democrats negotiate that? My plan would maintain the secure border that we have now. We have 654 miles of fencing thousands and thousands of personnel. We have boats, we have helicopters, we have airplanes. So this is far from open borders. We would maintain the ability to deport people, of course. You know, open borders is just a, just a slogan. It's just a right-wing talking point. And, and so I think there will be a debate in the Democratic primary over what is the best approach, both for Democratic primary voters and also for the biggest issue that Democratic primary voters care about right now, which is finding someone who can beat Donald Trump in, in November of next year. 
And I think that debate among Democrats about how to frame a new immigration policy speaks to what a precarious position they're in. Because in the past, basically the party line was illegal immigration isn't actually that big of a problem, that Republicans are painting this problem to be bigger than it actually is, that the numbers of people coming to the country are actually at historic lows. And so we don't need to treat this as an emergency because it's not. But that's changed. And it actually is an emergency. And you can sort of debate why that emergency came about. But I think Democrats are trying to figure out how to deal with this new reality. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and the, and the numbers have changed just in the last three, four months. And so last year when, when there was a debate over caravans coming, the message in the in the midterm elections from Democrats was this this is a false emergency. There is no invasion at the southern border. This year during the government shutdown, the Democratic message was we don't need a new border wall. Now, it, it should be said that that the new emergency on the border is different in kind than the one we had before. And it's also true that the new emergency on the border will not be stopped or changed by a border wall. The vast majority of these people coming, more than 100,000 in March, are families who are seeking asylum. They are not sneaking across the border as much as they are announcing themselves at the border. And in many places along the border, there is a border fence or border wall but it is inland to the U.S. border. So all they have to do is cross the river, stand on the beach of the river in, the, in U.S. territory and say, hey, I'm here, come arrest me. And they haven't crossed a wall, they haven't jumped a fence or dug under one, and they've made it to the United States because under law, they're then allowed to apply for asylum and they go into the legal process. So it is an emergency. I think Democrats, you've seen in the last few weeks, changing their tone on this, but I think they are going to continue to insist that this is a different kind of emergency than the one the president is talking about. These are not criminals coming into the United States, and they're not people really coming in in the way they did in the in the 90s and early 2000s, just seeking economic opportunities. They're, they're in many cases, fleeing a real violence and danger. I believe that we should try compassion and also invest in uh, the immigration judiciary in the ability to process asylum claims and undo the backlog we know that many of the people who are requesting asylum likely will not get it, but some may, and they're entitled to their claim. Another big question for Democrats is whether their voters care about immigration as much as Republicans do. If you ask, what are the top issues for you as a voter? Republicans put immigration in the top three. Democrats put it at the bottom, you know, closer to nine or ten. And so if you're talking about immigration, you're basically appealing to a more conservative slice of the electorate, which is why even in the 2018 elections, Democrats really didn't engage much on immigration. Even when they were being attacked on immigration, they tried not to speak about it too much because it wasn't the thing driving their voters. The thing driving their voters was concerns about healthcare and the economy. And so they only talked about healthcare and the economy, and it was a very effective strategy. It worked. When we talked to Julian Castro, he he said that he felt that Americans were ready for some nuance when it comes to immigration policy and that they're ready to engage with an actual actionable policy rather than engaging just on politics or on sort of cultural conceptions of, of immigration. Yeah, I don't think that the answer is to cede the ground to this president uh, when he's been a total failure on this issue. If you just measure him on his own terms, there are more people that are coming, presenting themselves at the southern border than before. So, yeah, I believe that people are ready to look in another direction. Do you think that's true or is that kind of naive? 
I do think that's true. I think if you go beyond the base, there are broad majorities of Americans who support basic things uh, that have been put forward for immigration reform, you know, like E-Verify for making it harder to hire undocumented people at, at workplaces, a path to citizenship for the 11 million who are currently here, a, a path to citizenship for dreamers, the young people who came to the U.S. as children, basic border security. I mean, these are issues that poll 60, 70 percent. The problem is that group of people are not voting on the issue of immigration because for that group of people, the issue of immigration is just not the top priority. On the flip side, on the Trump side, he has a demonstrated ability to really turn out his base supporters with a sort of fear-mongering demagogic approach to immigration. And e even if that's only 30% of the country, it can be very effective uh, for him. But I, but I think Castro is absolutely right that, you know, one of the things that Democratic pollsters found in the midterm elections was that if Democratic candidates responded to the ads about caravans and Southern invasion and the rhetoric of President Trump by saying, look, he's just playing politics. Voters were really receptive to that because they do read it that way. They read it as not really a president who's looking for a solution to this problem, but someone who's exploiting an issue to play politics with it. You know, not 100% of voters, because his supporters wouldn't say that, but voters in the middle, the vote, the swing vote that you're going for, are very sympathetic to that idea. So there is an opportunity for Democrats, if they can position themselves in a way where they are comforting on one hand and saying, look, I do believe in the rule of law. I do believe in border security. We do have to have, you know, a sort of system that makes sense, that is legal. I have a plan to do that. And all he's doing is playing politics and demagoguing and all this. I think there is an opportunity if then you can go to the next sentence and say, and by the way, I'm offering this to you for your jobs, for your family, for your health care, for your education, the other issues you care a lot about. Michael Shear is a national political reporter for The Post. Yazidis are an ancient religious minority group, and they've faced persecution for centuries from lots of their neighbors and became a real target for the Islamic State. In 2014, the Yazidis in northern Iraq went from a little-noticed ethnic group to the center of an international humanitarian crisis. ISIS fighters launched a systematic attack to decimate Yazidi communities— they killed men and took women and children as slaves. The Islamic State incorrectly argued that they worshipped the devil and that, you know, they were not Muslim. Emily Rahala covers foreign affairs. She focuses on Canada. Around 2017, the Canadian government decided they wanted to do something to help Yazidi refugees. And so they created a special program for victims of the Islamic State, particularly women and children who had survived captivity. The Canadian government agreed to take more than 1,000 Yazidi women and their families who were survivors of this crisis and resettle them in Canada. Emily went to Canada to interview several of those refugees, including one woman named Melkia. So we're just driving up to a house in Richmond Hill. Pretty cold out, maybe a foot of snow on the ground. 
and we're going to visit um, one of the Yazidi families who's been resettled in Canada. My colleague Amanda Coletta, who's a Toronto-based freelancer, we're interested in looking at what happened to the Yazidi refugees that Canada accepted. Okay, so we're starting a new interview. A lot of women in this community were terrified to talk. They didn't want to talk about what happened to them, and they wanted to move on. It smells high up, right? Melkia. How do you say it again? Melkia. Melkia. Melkia seemed to have decided that the best way to move forward was to have her say and to tell her story. A warning, Melkia and her translator speak openly about experiences of sexual violence. In 2014, she was living with her husband's family in a village in northern Iraq when the Islamic State came. She was nine months pregnant and gave birth shortly after the Islamic State moved on the town. After the men were killed, women like Melkia were put onto buses and trucks and shipped across what was then the Islamic State Caliphate, their territory. And over the next two and a half years, she was moved from city to city, town to town, and bought and sold several times by different fighters. Around 2016-2017, she managed to escape to a refugee camp in northern Iraq with the help of smugglers. From there, she got her name on a list to come to Canada. And she landed in Canada in the summer of 2017. And we should say... We're not using her last name, correct? That's right. She's happy to have her first name used for this story. And for all of this reporting, we chose to use identify the adult survivors of this crisis by their first names and not their, their family names, mostly because a lot of them have children, some of whom were also enslaved. So what is her life like? like where is she living and, and who is helping her through this? So the Yazidis who came to Canada as part of this group were settled in cities across the country. Calgary and many in Toronto, which is where Melkia ended up. Her days are quite different than anything she's used to. Before the Islamic State came, she was living in a basically a farming community. She never had the chance to go to school, and now she's in you know a big a big city. Um, she's focusing on learning English at a government sponsored English class for refugees and learning basic literacy, uh, trying to get her head around her new life. And who has been helping her through this process? So there's non-governmental organizations called settlement agencies that are tasked with sort of helping newcomers to Canada. Those groups provided things like getting a health card so they can get health care, help finding a house, getting furniture. But she and many others in this community have argued that that help did not go far enough. But the government of Canada hasn't helped us besides that they brought us here and we were in a hotel for a little bit and then they kind of forgot about us and now we're on our own. And that there was a lot of sort of basic needs that were not met by the Canadian government. Like what? I think the biggest one is access to psychiatric care and specialized health care in their language. So the Canadian government has pretty good services for refugees. They're used to working with some of the most traumatized people in the world. But everyone we spoke to who's been involved in this said that the needs that they arrived with, the needs that women like Melkia arrived with, were unlike anything they'd ever seen. Hmm. And, How so? I mean, first of all, it's just this, the scope of the trauma. So many of them had not 
had had witnessed or had known that multiple members of their extended family had been killed. And then they'd spent years, in some cases, in sexual enslavement. They'd witnessed the sexual enslavement of others, including family members and women from their villages, even by the standards of, you know, vulnerable newcomers coming to Canada. Their symptoms were really extreme. This was the hardest thing for me to go through. So my husband was killed and I saw how many others like him were killed. And then afterwards I was bought and sold and raped. And I feel like there's nothing left that they didn't do. They did everything to us. Is she safe there now? So one of the things that she's really struggled with is how to feel safe in this new place. Um, For her, the conflict is still very much ongoing. She's on social media looking for updates about her relatives. She's reliving what happened through videos that still circulate from her time in captivity. So when I came to Canada, I thought... uh, I'm finally free from that fear that I had when I was in Iraq and Syria. And I thought that now I finally feel safe. And I felt like that for about a year and seven months. This year, she actually started getting menacing phone calls from men claiming to be part of the Islamic State. Phone calls just like out of the blue on her cell phone? That's right. She was on her way home from language class this winter in January. Uh, She got a call from a number she didn't recognize, although it, it looked to be a Canadian number. And, you know, she answered, this guy said, you know, I know who you are, and just you wait. And so it was really threatening. Oh, my gosh. She was terrified. You know, she never felt totally safe because of what she's been through, but she thought she was physically safe in Canada. And she hung up. And when she went public about the calls, she learned that other women in the community had been getting similar messages, text messages, uh, video calls. From men claiming to be Islamic State fighters calling to harass them. Wow. And I can imagine coming to Canada, even if you don't know that many people or it's really unfamiliar and challenging in a lot of ways, at least you feel okay, here I'm safe, my kid will be safe, but you start getting these phone calls and that completely undercuts that feeling of safety. Exactly. I think the way people described it to me, the way she described it was it sort of, it took this physical distance and the time that had passed between their time in captivity and just erased it. So suddenly they were back in those rooms in Syria. Suddenly they are back in captivity. Suddenly it was 2015 again. And for people that have survived so much, that's really terrifying. You mentioned that Melkia didn't have a lot of formal education before she got to Canada. And now a big part of trying to get her acclimatized to living there is getting her classes, language classes, stuff like that. What has that been like for her? I think for a lot of uh, people in her position, it's a big challenge. But for for Melkia in particular, she's really loved it. She speaks a Kurdish dialect. She also speaks some Arabic that she mostly learned through her captors. For a lot of people like her who survived the Islamic State, speaking Arabic 
conjures a lot of the horrible stuff that they went through. It reminds them of being in captivity. It reminds them of their time with the Islamic State. And so they're quite hesitant to seek social services in Canada through an Arabic-speaking doctor or an Arabic-speaking counselor. And one of the big challenges for this community and for Melki in particular has been accessing services in her native language as opposed to Arabic. The biggest complaint about how the Canadian government has handled this has been that they weren't prepared. What solutions are being offered to help people like Melkia? So a lot of the solutions focus on primary needs, getting people speaking English, working on basic literacy, preparing women to enter the job market for the first time in their lives in some cases. There's a sense that those needs can be met and will be met in time. And the bigger question is about how do you rebuild someone's sense of community? How do you give a community that's been decimated by what the United Nations calls the genocide, a sense of continuity, a sense that their their people are surviving and that their family will endure. And that's a much tougher question. What a lot of the Yazidi refugees in Canada want to do is bring this sort of scattered remnants of their family back over to Canada with them. So we don't want to be alone. We want uh, people like my son, who's only four years old, who knows that his dad was killed, to be uh, rescued from the torrent and the uh, struggle that they're still in right now, living in refugee camps. But the law is quite limiting. It lets you bring a spouse or an immediate child. It doesn't let you bring over an auntie, brother-in-law, a cousin. And so these, you know, these people that were targeted, family ties that were targeted specifically by the Islamic State, can't really be renewed. We know that the caliphate has lost its geographical hold in Iraq and Syria. For people like Malkia, what does that mean for them? Are they taking comfort in the fact that the Islamic State has mostly fallen? I think they were watching very closely. I mean, they've been watching on their phones, on social media for months, waiting waiting for this moment. And now the moment has arrived and there's not a lot of clarity. <laughs> So she said that fire is Iraq. She said uh, that fire is uh, 10-year-old girls getting raped. Um, It's continuing and uh, nothing changing. And the fire is still very well alive in Iraq and in those camps. There are an untold number of Yazidis who were believed to be in captivity and living among um, Islamic State fighters who are not yet accounted for. It's not clear, you know, who has been freed, who is no longer with us. I mean, ISIS has lost its territory, but their ideology and their impact on the people that they targeted is still very much alive. What these women are living with, what their children are living with, won't end just because the territory falls. As long as this group is influential and as long as these women are continuing to recover from this trauma, the Islamic State is continuing to shape their lives. Emily Rahala covers foreign affairs for The Post. One more thing about an image from space. 
we are delighted to be able to report to you today that we have seen and taken a picture of a black hole. The announcement was made by a group called the Event Horizon Telescope. It's not a single telescope. It's actually a network. To do this, we worked for over a decade to link telescopes around the globe to make an Earth-sized virtual dish. I'm Joel Achenbach. I'm a science reporter for the National Desk of The Washington Post. The photo is a little bit blurry. It's not obvious right away what you're looking at, but there's no question there is a roughly spherical dark hole in the middle of it with this material kind of in a torus or a donut shape around the black hole. I mean, it does look like something you could sort of sink your teeth into if it was, you know, a a Krispy Kreme. You know, the, the eureka moments are actually fairly few and far between. But this was kind of a eureka moment. Like, here it is. There is a black hole. That's an actual thing. It's real. It's not just a theory. I talked to one of the scientists. She said she spent her whole life working on this. And it was very moving for her because it's real. There it is. So it's a classic case of seeing is believing. Joel Achenbach writes about science and politics for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. Follow me on Twitter at Martine Powers or share your thoughts on this episode with the hashtag Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.